This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our show here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management at Wharton and a professor here in the Management Department. Just as a reminder, we're live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times during the week as well. Our show focuses on how established firms can remain innovative and handle disruption challenges, and we bring in executives, industry experts, and academics as our guests to provide insights from their experience and their work with us. If you have any comments or any questions during today's show, just give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Excuse me. Coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Baba Prasad, author of the new book, Nimble, Make Yourself and Your Company Resilient in the Age of Constant Change. But now I'm thrilled to welcome Bob Maglia, the CEO of Snowflake Computing, a cloud-based data warehouse company. But Bob may be most famous for his 23 years at Microsoft, where he worked his way as a key executive before leaving in 2011. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's great, to, it's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about Snowflake, just to get us started, and the products and services you offer and what you're doing with the company. Absolutely. So Snowflake is what's called a cloud data warehouse. We make it possible for companies who have lots of data to analyze that data and make it available to all of their business analysts to make better business decisions. And we were built uh, to operate at massive scale with incredible elasticity in the cloud, allowing you know, people to use and get it, uh, access to the resources they need, the computing resources they need, to analyze this data when they need it, and then not having to pay for it when they don't. So it's a, it's a data, it's a basically a very large, very capable, analytic, SQL relational database that people can use to work with large amounts of business data. Can you give us some examples of what kind of businesses use your services and what applications they might uh, use this for? Sure, absolutely. So we, you know, we've been in the business now selling this product for just about three and a half years or so. Uh, we've, uh, we're, we're a young company overall. And we work with companies as with other companies as they move their environments, their IT environments to the cloud, and want to leverage uh, cloud technology to actually work with their data. So when we started selling a little over three years ago, uh, the cloud was still in relatively early stages, and, and we worked mostly with companies who had gone all in on the cloud uh, and had a lot of data there, and and that tended to be entertainment, media, online gaming, and some tech companies, particularly people offering SaaS services. Mm -hmm. So those were really our first set of customers, customers who had a lot of data that they needed to do analytics and analysis on in the cloud. What's happening now and what we're seeing now is that very traditional companies uh, that, that you think of as, 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 as being consumer-oriented companies, banks, manufacturing companies, retailers, pretty much everybody, airlines, pretty much every major company has a strategy to move some percentage of their IT 
into the cloud. And moving data is an important part of that. And so we're now working uh, with, you know, with companies that are moving off of traditional on-premises data warehouses and moving those, those into a cloud environment. And, you know, an example of this is a company like Lionsgate, who's a, you know, a, f- a film producer. And, mm-hmm. you know, and they're now using Snowflake as their primary data warehouse, and they've, they've moved off an on-premises system. That's very exciting. Now, you mentioned, you kind of slipped in a couple of things there. I mean, one is there's this component of moving data to the cloud, which you can consider as, uh, to some extent, storage, right? But then you mentioned also the part about data analysis and big data analysis. Uh, How far are we on that dimension? Um, What are the kinds of analyses that we can do? How much can these warehouses do for us beyond just store the data? That's a great question. That's a fantastic question. See, if you if you look at, at at what native services that a cloud provider like Amazon provides, they have built in some very, very powerful tools to store data. And we leverage this technology. So Amazon has a, 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 a storage technology that they call S3, which is used to store large amounts of data in a very, very cost-effective manner. And S3 is an amazing service. I mean, it's very, very reliable, uh, it's predictable, uh, and it's very cost-effective. It might be one of the most cost-effective ways of storing data today. But when you put data in S3, it's really hard to do analytics from it. it it's mm-hmm. really like a file system. The, the data is sitting there, but you need some set of, 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 of mechanisms to actually do analysis of it at any level of performance. And that's where a product like Snowflake can come in. Mm-hmm. We're built on top of that architecture, on top of what Amazon provides with tools like S3. But then we provide a very broad set of database services to let to treat that data as, it, as, it, as, as an analytic relational database. And so when data goes into Snowflake, you can get answers to the questions that you want, and you can use the same kind of techniques that you might use to work against traditional databases like an Oracle or a Teradata or a Netiza, which is what these traditional enterprises have been using, you know, really for the last 10, 20, even 30 years in some cases. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to disrupt these uh, existing incumbents in many ways, right, by taking what they do, um, for lack of a better word, it's done by software, but more manually, whereas you put this here into the cloud and, and get it automated to some extent and add much more sophisticated capability to it, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially, what you know, what these products are is they were all databases that were designed really decades ago, yeah, and they've evolved based on that architecture. And, and they're good products for their architecture. They're quite mature and they work quite well. But what we find when we talk to customers who've been working with these products is they have a set of challenges in getting them to scale the way they want them to scale, yeah. particularly getting them to work across a large number of end users in, in their company. In the past, people used to lock these things in, in uh, behind doors, and, and only a small number of people in the organization had access to these data warehouses. And, and that might have been okay 10 or 15 years ago, but, but now everybody's recognizing that you want to bring analytics to your entire user user base and spread it across your organization and, and essentially empower everybody in the organization with data mm-hmm. to answer business questions. And, and that's where these, these traditional products fall down. I mean, you can, you can support maybe you know, 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 concurrent queries running on these traditional systems. But beyond that, they, 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 they are unable to, to, to provide additional capability, whereas we can scale way, way beyond that. And, and that's a very key dimension that customers are looking for. 
Fascinating. Now, you you touched upon the relationship with Amazon. Um, and are you are you cooperating in a partnership with Amazon and simultaneously perhaps competing in other aspects? Or how do you view the relationship with one of the large firms in that space? Right. Well, it's, 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 it's one of those great questions. Uh, Amazon provides a very broad set of services and capabilities. I think they have yeah. over 150 different services now. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's really one or two services that we compete with. They have a competing product called Redshift, mm-hmm. uh, which we definitely do compete with. Um, Redshift is derived from a traditional uh, relational database. So it has the, even though it runs in the Amazon cloud, and they've done a very good job of integrating it into their cloud environment, it still has the same limitations uh, that these other products have. So when customers use Redshift, uh, if they start trying to do a lot of things at the same time with it, ultimately they will find that, that, that they need a different solution. Makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, the world of coopetition is something which we're very comfortable with nowadays, right? I think that uh, there are facets in which we have to be part of a larger ecosystem um, or have certain supplier relationships or maybe horizontal ones. And in other cases, we actually are, you know, competitors. And that's fine. And I think everybody sees the value um, and the roles. I, I think that's exactly right. It, it's it's hard to find relationships uh, these days that don't have some aspect of competition associated with them. And I sort I had that experience certainly in working with, at Microsoft for many many years when I was running the server and tools business, where yeah. there were a lot of companies that we worked with very closely as partners that we also in some dimensions competed with. And I you know I think Amazon has similar experience. I mean Amazon's been a very good partner for us. I mean they're a great partner. And, you know, we enjoy working with them, and, and, and we do that in many ways. Um, but we also do compete with them um, pretty much every day of the week, and I think that's fairly typical these days. Absolutely. I mean, if we turn to a different industry, the airline industry, we love to think about Star Alliance and Sky Team in one world and how all the partners get along. But actually, they do, com- you know, work together and collaborate, obviously. But at the same time, they've got their own interests to protect as well. And everybody, as long as everybody benefits, that's okay. Sure, that's exactly right, and I think that's the reality of the world. Now, it's interesting, you know, this is one of, you talk about innovation, and I think it is one of the choices that, that it, a company such as Snowflake makes. Yeah. You know, we've chosen to be very partner-centric in the way we work and go to market, and and we're working with, you know, literally hundreds of partners at this point in time, and and some of them very, very deeply to help our customers. And we recognize that, that we can't solve all their problems. Uh, yeah. Snowflake can provide a critical component. You know, we have what we think is the world's best database mm-hmm. uh, to build on top of, but that's only one component of the solution. And they need tools to do uh, analysis, you know, tools like t- a Tableau or a Looker to do, anal- to do analytics and actually visualize the data. Mm-hmm. They need uh, tools to get the data into the data warehouse, and they use products like Informatica or Talend or some of the, the, the newer SaaS products mm-hmm. uh, that, that allow you to get data out of your existing applications as easily as possible. And, of course, we wind up working with uh, many, many systems integrators that help to solve the problem for the customer. And, and we think this is part of the overall solution. I mean, and, and, and you know, we know that, that when we're talking to these folks, that they're at the same time. They're, they're deploying, you know, they're deploying Redshift. They're, they're working with other customers on Redshift, yeah. with other customers on Oracle. And, and that's okay. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, and I think, like you're saying, there's too much to be done and markets shift too quickly and too many opportunities to pursue. We're resource constrained. You can't do everything yourself, nor might you be good at everything. 
Yeah, and, and truthfully, no, customers don't want you to do everything. Right. Either. That's the other thing. They want to be working with multiple vendors, and they want the ability to have choice associated with their decisions. So having those choices, in some senses, helps put the customer in control. And by working across the industry, we, we can provide the best portfolio of potential solutions for our customers. Fascinating. Um, of course, Bob, you've got a tremendous amount of experience in managing innovation. You spent time at Microsoft, you had a bit of time at Juniper, um, and then you went into uh, CEO mode at a startup, uh, Snowflake. And, and I want to draw upon the insights and experiences and lessons that you've drawn. One of the things I want to ask you, though, right off the bat is, um, when it came to Snowflake, uh, the company, the startup, was under stealth mode for a long time. And I was curious about that and how it impacted your ability to really move forward that firm and, and advance its products and get funding. What are the advantages and disadvantages of, of doing something like that? Well, it's very common uh, for new technology companies in their first years of existence to operate in stealth mode, mm -hmm. um, to operate where, where they're, they're keeping what they're doing relatively private. And, and Snowflake was very much in that mode when I joined it, but not for too long. It was only about five months we were in stealth mode in 2014 after I joined. The company was founded in 2012, and we'd been in, in stealth mode for almost two years at the time. Or the company had been in stealth mode for almost two years by the time I joined it. And when you're in that early stage where you're building a product, it makes sense to not be broadcasting exactly what you're doing mm -hmm. uh, because you want to get a good lead on, on anyone else who might choose to, to enter the market and compete with you. And that's, that's why you go into stealth mode. Sure. What's challenging, though, is when you start, and it's not hard to get funding when you're in stealth mode because you can go talk to, if, if you've got a good, if you've got a good value, is a separate conversation about getting funding, but if yes. you've got a good value proposition, being in stealth mode doesn't hurt you in any way because you have no problem talking to VCs about, I mean, you can get in and talk to the VCs about what you're doing, and they may or may not choose to fund you. Um, what is really challenging uh, is is when you're trying to work with customers and, and start start getting your product into trial at customers. Yeah. And we were doing that. We were in that stage when I joined the company. We had hired uh, our head of our VP of sales, had come on board uh, about seven months before I did, and he was building. He he at the time had built a small team, and we were doing things like cold calling customers and mm -hmm. sending email messages to customers, uh, telling them about a little bit about what we were doing saying that, that a little bit more than what we would say on our website. Now, our website basically said we were reinventing the database. Mm -hmm. um, and we would explain to them a little more that we were building a, a new type of, of SQL relational database that ran in the cloud. And we would reach out to customers. And some of them were interested. We had a number of very early adopter-type customers that, yeah. that came on board and were able to penetrate into that even with the cloak of stealth and, <laughs> yes. and gets their attention. And once you get their attention, the fact that you're in stealth means nothing because you can go and tell them everything you want to tell them yeah. under an NDA. And, uh, and able to get our story in front of them, and we were able to get some early customers. But we very quickly transitioned out of stealth as we started to reach out and work with customers because you really want to tell your story. Yeah. And, and it's, it's that transition point where you're really trying to go reach customers where coming out of stealth makes sense. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to hone in on. on uh, I guess once you've got your first few customers, is that a good time to come out of stealth mode and start publicizing your message a bit more? 
generally speaking, I think it is. I think that's because because you can't easily grow your customer base without being able to use modern marketing techniques. One of the things that's been fun, uh, one of the things that's been fun for me to watch inside Snowflake, and I've I've really experienced this very much firsthand, is how much digital marketing has changed mm-hmm. over the last twenty years. Uh, marketing used to be an art. It still has an element of art associated with it, but it is very much a science these days about mm-hmm. how you curate uh, people and leads to bring them to your website and then how you how you draw them through your website and get them interested in things and then ultimately get them into some sort of trial. And, uh, and, and you can only do that when you have, you know, you can't do that when you're in stealth mode. So that's, the, that's a good time to do it. And what you give up, of course, is you give up, you know, you become a little more transparent in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it provides some opportunity for others to potentially follow behind you, which Absolutely. is the risk. That's the risk. Yeah. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Choli, and I'm speaking with Snowflake Computing CEO Bob Muglia. Now, which brings that really that last comment in particular on the trade-offs brings me to a larger question. Um, You know, working for a startup and promoting innovation there, product innovation, business model innovation, is obviously very different from working in a large, established, well-resourced firm like Microsoft. What were the important differences that you have perceived between these large established players and startups like Snowflake in pursuing these kinds of disruptive changes? Yeah, I this you know the list is really quite long and of and course. I can take that this that question from both a personal perspective and how it how it impacted what I did. As well as from a business question, let me let me do, do with the business one first. Sure. When I was at Microsoft, uh, and when I was president of Server and Tools before I left in 2011, um, I was running an organization that had a, a portfolio of products. Mm-hmm. So we had Windows Server, SQL Server, Visual Studio, our System Center management products were all part of what I was delivering for the company. And you know, overall, that was worth about the the revenue was about 17 billion dollars, and 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 I had an organization of just about 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And when you're running an organization like that, you're you're really managing a large portfolio as a part of a company that has an even larger portfolio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I did was working. Uh, a lot of what my job was about was working cross company issues, and a lot of our strategy was derived from what Microsoft's strategy was overall in terms of where we were moving our business forward. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of time was spent in cross-organizational coordination. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that can be rewarding and it can also be frustrating. I mean, both are, are, both are very, very true. In a small company, you essentially have none of that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're mm-hmm. really focusing on what is essentially one consistent set of objectives. You know, at Microsoft, we had a lot of different objectives. My different, even my teams underneath me had different objectives. The mm-hmm. SQL Server team had very different objectives than the, the Windows Server team did. Mm-hmm. At Snowflake, we have one consistent set of objectives for the company, and and that's a really big difference in the way people operate. Is 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 that if you can have your entire organization working on a consistent set of objectives, it's very very easy for people to focus and work together, and a lot less time is spent wasted on things that ultimately don't have a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I think, it can be a lot more productivity associated with small companies because you can achieve focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know that's been one of the big differences, and one that I frankly enjoyed uh, quite a bit 
uh, as I transitioned to Snowflake. I, I liked working in the big company environment, and I, and I, I think I had some good skills at it, mm-hmm. but I, I find it quite refreshing to be focused. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we talk about these advantages and disadvantages. Oftentimes there's a myth out there that, you know, big companies are not good at anything, but that's not true, right? I and mean, the small companies have the creativity, the freedom, the focus, like you talk about it, but they don't have the resources or the customers. And you've got big companies who come with the brands and the installed base of customers and the resources to do a lot of things. And, and we need both for different kinds of innovations, I would believe. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that there's huge roles for large companies and small companies in the evolution of technology. If you look at what's happening, for example, with the the creation of the cloud mm-hmm. and companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google making massive investments in building these enormous data centers, those investments require literally tens of billions of dollars of capital. Mm-hmm. Not even billions, tens of billions of dollars in capital. Mm-hmm. And and you can't. You, there's no way you can you can achieve that from a small company perspective. There's not enough. There's a lot of money in the VC community, but no one is going to be funding a small company to go up against these large, super well-funded companies that are b- making these huge capital um, capital commitments. And there's a set of things that you know big companies can do much better than anyone else. Uh, but we do see at the same time a very large percentage of the innovation that's happening. Uh, in the technology world happening from small companies that are mm-hmm. doing things in a very disruptive way that is tougher for big companies to do. Big companies are not that good at disrupting things. Yes. They're very good at taking something and scaling it and yeah. making it very large. Yeah. No, and that's, and that's really a, a point that I wanted to touch upon. In big companies, we've got the advantages of, say, scaling and um, you know, developing a market in, in different ways, but there's so much inertia um, ways of thinking and working um, that build up over time for good reasons. You know, you've got all kinds of customers, you've got uh, all kinds of products and services that work. And so, and also there are many possible disruptions out of which only a very small subset will actually make it. So recognizing and reacting to them is quite a bit of a, a challenge. How can large companies um, recognize those new disruptions and and respond in a more agile way than we often see? It's the, it, it's it's a it's one of the hardest problems that that that, that companies face. One of the things yeah. that 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 I I experienced at Microsoft in my tenure there was essentially the challenges associated with our success. Mm-hmm. So 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 if you when I joined Microsoft, our mission was very, very straightforward and simple. It was a PC on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software. Mm-hmm. That was what our vision, our mission for the company was from the day Bill had created the company in the, in the, in the 1970s. But then something very frightening happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was we actually achieved our mission. (laughs) (laughs) And there actually was a PC on pretty much every desk and in every home in the developed world that had the cash to buy a PC. And all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've kind of fulfilled your mission. And this is the point in where where even the best companies that are the most successful struggle the most yeah. when they have a product that is, is, is very much a product market fit and they've grown that into a huge business and you know it's a it's a big 
addressable market, but they've effectively saturated their addressable market. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this happen again and again to companies over long periods of time. And when, you know, it doesn't happen in five years. It happens in 10 or 20 years. It's that kind of a time frame. But when it happens, very, very few companies have the guts and the insight to make the transitions to build new businesses, in many cases, businesses that cannibalize their previous business. Yeah. And, you, and, and here's the thing. You have to recognize that and, make, and begin to make those investments and, and actually succeed at those investments mm-hmm. before your, your traditional existing market is fully saturated. Yeah. Because once you stop growing, see what happens is you're growing. You're you know you're growing really strongly. You all the, building this new market. You're growing. You're growing. The Wall Street loves that. And then as the market begins to saturate, your growth slows, and eventually it stops. Basically, mm-hmm. and that's what we saw in the PC market, right? We saw it. It effectively the growth rate effectively dropped to zero um, in the last ten years. And 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 you know we you see this this happening with with other companies as well and and what you have to have been able to do is make the investments before that growth stops to uh, to transition into the new thing and if I look in the history of time there are you know it's not hard finding companies that have plateaued and never found the next thing mm-hmm. it is it is pretty hard to find companies that, that, that have, have managed to find the next thing. I, the kinds of examples I think of was I think about Hewlett-Packard in the 1980s yeah. when HP became a printer company. I mean, that was a really great example of a new business being yeah. added into the HP, HP portfolio. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, you, you know, the most famous story of this is probably Apple with what Steve Jobs did uh, with, with the advent of devices and then ultimately building that into the iPhone franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gerstner did it at IBM in the 90s by pivoting to be a services company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're seeing uh, Microsoft do it again. Uh, Microsoft do it now with, with the pivot to the cloud. Yeah. Um, Adobe pivoted uh, when, when their creative suite uh, uh, and the creative products that they always had pretty much saturated. They transitioned those to a subscription model and then also built a whole new um, new business yeah. uh, with, their, with, their, with their experience cloud. But the, the list of examples of companies that, that successfully make this transition yeah. are very few. Yeah. And you see the, you know, the skeletons of those that have not. Absolutely. And, and uh, the important message for me is that it can be done. And, and like you pointed out, what's important is that while you're still ahead, while you've got cash, uh, you have the opportunity to experiment. You know, not everything that you pursue in these new areas may work out, but um, some of the areas will. And so as a larger or established company, you've at least got that advantage and you've got to cannibalize yourself and try these different things. And it's really heartening to see the likes of Microsoft doing so well. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, you spent a lot of time um, clearly with um, both Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And um, were there any lessons that you gleaned as you worked with these very well-known figures? Well, I, I think that the answer to that is, is, is there's an endless set of lessons <laughs> I, I learned. I, I essentially grew up uh, in my career uh, uh, with incredible leaders like Bill and Steve and other folks like Paul Moritz that I, I look up to and, and having learned an enormous amount from. I think that one of the biggest lessons I've learned about those folks is, is really tenacity mm-hmm. um, and the willingness to, 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 to 
down and do whatever it takes to be successful. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really key thing. And I think we saw that again and again with Microsoft is Microsoft faced many challenges and were able to, you know, to transition through that. And the Internet itself, the, the miserable DOJ trial where, where really tenacity was very much required. Yeah. Uh, you know, those two guys could have, you know, in, in 2001, those, those two guys could have thrown in their hat, hat in the ring and said, yeah, fine, we're done. And they could have walked away billionaires, and and the company would not have survived yeah. in the way it, and certainly wouldn't have thrived the way it has. Um, so that's one thing. One of the other things that I think is important about what what they taught me was the ability to and the willingness to really dive deep in on issues. Mm-hmm. That was one of the great things about Microsoft is that you could is that the the the, the culture of Microsoft was always a questioning culture, mm-hmm. and so. Any idea would be questioned, and it would be vetted with, with to an extreme level. Mm-hmm. And that's really helpful when you have leaders that are willing to get their hands dirty and understand things in depth. And I think one of the challenges a lot of large companies have is as companies grow and, and you have a lot of people in it, the leaders become more and more detached. Yeah, removed, yeah. And it's a real big problem. I, I, I think that's something you can't, you can't be, in technology especially, you can't do that. And when you think about iconic technology leaders, you know, mm-hmm. the people like Bill Gates, like Elon Musk, like Steve Jobs, you know these are all guys who have their hands deep into things, right? Yeah. And they're really in the middle of, of I mean, I, 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 hear, I remember hearing the story of, of Elon Musk, you know, being at some speech in that he's doing a small talk, and, you know, he, and he, he picks up the phone, and the his phone rings in the middle of it, and he says, excuse me a second, and, and, he's, and he goes off and, and quotes some, some parameters for the fueling of a SpaceX <laughs> rocket yes. to, no, 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 you have to fuel it at this, you know, this rate or whatever. And it's like right in the middle of things. He's right in the middle of all the details. And I yeah. think that's critical. It's just critical. Yeah, very, very impressive. Now, uh, the final question I wanted to ask you is, you know, this notion of tenacity, I think you have in particular taken that to heart, right? I mean, uh, the journey that you had at Microsoft ended up stellar. But there were a few ups and downs in between, in some ways, at least from certain perspectives. But well, I was fired twice. <laughs> <laughs> you displayed so much resilience, you came back and came out ahead. I mean, uh, you know, that was really remarkable that you, uh, that you had that. I mean, what was going through your head? Well, I, it, it, there, were two, there were two very distinct circumstances. So, in, in, you know, my, so I talk about the great leaders like Bill and Steve, and that, that's very true, and I learned an enormous amount from both of them. I, I will say I worked directly. I never actually directly reported to Bill Gates, um, but I did directly report to Steve, to Steve Ballmer for a number of years. And Steve was a challenging manager, for sure. I mean, <laughs> there's, no, there's no questions about that, and he and I did not always see eye to eye on things, and that's, that's relatively well publicized. Uh, you can find that in the whole <laughs> articles of the Wall Street Journal if you want to look for it. Um, but, you know, as I say, I learned a lot from him. When I, I first when I first uh, uh, tripped up with Steve, I was um, uh, in the MSN team in 2001, and uh, Steve was changing his structure to move to 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 to, to a P&L structure, and and he decided to not make me one of the leaders, and instead. Um, I moved from a position um, in one day where I went from 3,000 people working to me for me to one, and um, and I started essentially a little startup at Microsoft uh, that was working on storage at the time, and and it was a fun. It was one of the great learning events in my career because I um, in that in that situation, 
what I wound up doing was essentially uh, calling. I wanted to stay at the company. I did not want to leave at the time. And I wound yeah. up calling just about everybody I know and told them about what had happened. And I, you know, I let them know that I was excited about the new role, but this had happened. And, and the response was pretty much always the same. It was, okay, Bob, that's, that's interesting. I, I wish you the best. And <laughs> what I found was like a month or two later, people would come back to me and say how much they respected getting that phone call from yeah. me, yeah. That, that I was upfront about what had happened and that I was going to you know, roll up my sleeves and go, out it, go at it again. And people really, really appreciated that. And essentially, when I left Microsoft in 2011, it was time for me to move on. But essentially, I focused on doing the same thing with a different group of people. This time, I went to Juniper. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I really, again, focused on rolling up my sleeves and, 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 and trying to, to, to take the lessons I had and, and really learn from them and, and, you know, and, and continue to improve. All hallmarks of another great leader, and uh, thanks for your modesty. Bob, you know, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. So many interesting facets. I'm sure we could go on for much longer, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time on this front. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Where can our listeners keep up with you? Do you have a blog or other sure. page? Well, we, we, you know, I think the place to look at us is snowflake.net. I do have a blog. I do blog on there occasionally, and, yeah. and, and we're always doing things. Snowflake is, uh, we're a real dynamic company. We're having a lot of fun. Wonderful. We look forward to following all of that, and I'm sure our listeners will too. We need to take a short break now, but when we come back, I'll be joined by Baba Prasad, author of Nimble, Make Yourself and Your Company Resilient in the Age of Constant Change. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhary, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.